BG Media presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean, sit down with Riverside Research's Business Development Director for the United States Air Force and United States Space Force, Dan Mosqueda, for a conversation on a life of service. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango Dean. Finally, our esteemed guest, Dan Mosqueda. Mosqueda's goal is to either bring great solutions to aid in meeting the missions of the Department of the Air Force, or to play a key role in assisting in the understanding and evaluation of technology, mission operations, sustainment, and ultimately contribute to the security of the nation and her allies. Mosqueda retired as a Lieutenant Colonel from the United States Air Force in 2015. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of High Tech Sunday. And as always, we are really excited to spend some time with you and with our special guest today, Dan Mosqueda. Hey, Dan, how's it going? It's going great, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you so much uh, for having me. uh, I've been really looking forward to this. As are we. And I'm telling you, when we think about the topic today and the focus on a life of service, it really could not be more timely. So we're going to jump right in, if that's okay. And we're going to, I won't say put you in the hot seat, but we'll put you on the elevator. want to get a, an idea about who you are. And so could you reflect for us really quickly, uh, if we happen to get on the elevator with you on the first floor, had a ride up to, let's say, the sixth floor, so you could give us some headlines. Could you talk to us a little bit about your professional background and why it is that you actually chose to pursue the path that you did? Sure. So uh, I'm a retired uh, Air Force officer. My uh, professional focus was uh, in the space and uh, missile communities, as well as uh, some work uh, in the international treaty uh, community. And, uh, you know, I chose this path actually from seeing the pastor of my church when I was a little kid. I must have been four years old. And he was a colonel in the United States Army uh, Reserve as a chaplain. And every once in a while uh, at church, he he would wear his uniform. Uh, and that was uh, Pastor Gordon Cook. He uh, passed away, I'm going to say it's probably been about 15 years. Uh, you know, just seeing him had a big impact on me. And uh, that really stuck with me until uh, I started uh, coming up on making some career decisions. Very cool. And, and you know that on High Tech Sunday, um, we intentionally try to learn about the, the spiritual context for what has driven folks uh, in their vocation, their avocation. So we're going to drill down on that inspiration a little bit more. But first, um, when you think about your service, 
and uh, to our country, but also the focus on the space side. When did you know that that was the career path for you? What was it that kind of you said you started to make career decisions? What was the pivotal moment? Do you recall? I do. It's sort of funny, but, uh, you know, this was a case where I think um, uh, a television show had a, a really good impact. Uh, I used to love watching the Six Million Dollar Man, and uh, <laughs> while Pastor Cook may have been a colonel in the Army, uh, I think I wanted to be more like Colonel Steve Austin, except for I didn't want to really get in that bad accident that he was in, uh, but that truly did um, make me think about the United States uh, Air Force, and uh, you know that started, I'd say, in junior high, and kept, you know, I kept that in the forefront um, until the day in 1991 when I commissioned uh, out of Air Force ROTC at the University of Michigan. Awesome. And so I'm with you. I absolutely was a fan of the Six Million Dollar Man. And while all of the, the things that he was able to accomplish after he became kind of enhanced uh, was cool, just the technology involved with uh, that whole concept was, was something that I, too, probably around that junior high um, was was actually uh, captured by. And so uh, as you fast forward and you think about how you commissioned in from University of Michigan, when did you know what your passion or your mission for your life was? You, you, you had the career direction kind of identified, but what is the passion behind what you uh, have been focused on in life? Well, I think that, you know, there's a deep, uh, deep down inside me, there's uh, a desire to serve other people. And that really is the sort of thing that made that made me want to serve uh, the nation, but not only the nation. I mean, once you get into the military, one of the things you learn about is how we take care of each other in the best possible way in the military. And that to me uh, means that, you know, we, we mentor each other, we look out for each other in the case, you know, you've seen, I'm sure in uh, historic, uh, you know, films uh, that are accurate historically where um, military members look out for each other, uh, you know, from the foxhole to uh, to the office, to the airplane. And I think that that deep down inside of me, I guess what I learned all those years ago in Sunday school and uh, later saw is a lot of my core values inspired that in me. And uh, it's, it's uh, there with me uh, today as I try to work to bring uh, best technology and service to uh, to our United States Air Force and now our United States Space Force. And uh, even though, honestly, I'm not, I, I wasn't a trained uh, technology person, um, but I always had that interest in it. You know, when, when I got my first IBM PC, you know, I subscribed to Lotus 123 magazine and, and learned how to do spreadsheets, uh, probably when other people were going out and partying. So I guess I'm kind of boring, but you know, I, so I didn't have a lot of the technical training though. Certainly when I got into the air force, you know, this is part of what 
what is done. They, they, they take you through and they train you on what uh, you need to be able to do. And then, of course, we're also uh, trained in leadership. And I think that that really kind of gelled with some of the foundational values that I had in terms of uh, looking out for other people, uh, perhaps even before yourself. And I really um, glommed on to that. And, and I still hang on that up to this day. That is really, really interesting to, to see how that thread uh, has uh, been one that's kind of woven into, uh, if you will, the, the tapestry of your life in a way. So I said that uh, when you mentioned your, your childhood pastor, we would, we would dig in uh, to that just a little bit, and you already have, actually. So it's clear that your, your faith has uh, had a lot to do with how you approach the world, and you said it's really all about service. But is there, is there something that you could point to uh, as you reflect upon your pastor, and you said sometimes he would show up in uniform uh, uh, as part of his chaplaincy, I guess. What was it that really uh, stood out for you? Was it a particular uh, message of his, or was it just how he carried himself? What was it that really kind of inspired you and influenced you so strongly? Well, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't go back and say point to a given sermon or whatever at that time. But what I can say to you is that he was uh, just a lovely man and his wife, uh, Mrs. Uh, Lorraine Cook, she, she was really, um, really instrumental in helping our family out. And then there were people uh, at our church. I remember uh, growing up in, in Michigan where, you know, occasionally we would get uh, snowstorms and uh, one during one such event, you know, it was just a terrible storm. We lost power. And I remember uh, going out to a uh, church family's home uh, and they were very well off, um, very successful real estate family in town. And, you know, they put us up in their, in their home and let them, let us stay with them. Uh, because we just couldn't stay. We, we lived in an old farmhouse, and uh, I can't remember exactly what happened, but my dad at the time was a truck driver on a oil pipeline, so he was in northern Michigan and wasn't you know able to be there to, to help us with whatever the exact situation was. But um, it was just the kind of thing that I saw uh, as a child, and you know, one thing that uh, sticks in my mind was something that I learned. Um, I'm not sure if it was uh, in Sunday school or maybe on one of a couple mission trips I did, but I remember somebody, you know, uh, using the acronym JOY, only a military guy would call JOY an acronym, I guess, uh, but it was, uh, you know, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And I don't think it matters whether you're a Christian or not. I, I think the point is, is that, you know, there's, there, there must be at least two bigger things than you. And by recognizing that it makes it, I, I think a little bit you know, easier is the right word, but it certainly facilitates a life serving uh, the nation or it could be 
you know, serving a church or could be being a school teacher, could be being a coach, but, you know, any kind of profession where there's more to it than just yourself. And I suppose that could even, you know, apply to somebody like, um, you know, Warren Buffett, where, yeah, sure, he's a, one of the wealthiest men in the world, but obviously he cares about uh, his employees, he cares about his investors uh, and the economy and, and does things. So I think that, I, I guess it's just something that I picked up from Pastor Cook, but to tie it back together, you know, that as a child, I saw that and I grasped it and then continued to look for that through life. Dan, I think that that last part that you shared with us about joy is is universal, as you mentioned. Even if you're not a Christian, the idea that others than yourself is kind of the key to joy, um, I think is something that really kind of sets uh, a lot of what we think about on its head. And so I think that's a great way to lead into what we're talking about today, and that's a life of service. And again, certainly that is something uh, that is really important to you. And I think that when we think about it, it's important to how we approach taking care of each other, especially in uh, this ongoing pandemic that we uh, find ourselves in. And so we're going to talk about what does that look like? When you think about giving your life in service to our country, how does that look? What does that actually uh, mean when you think about it? Well, you know, I, I, I think that obviously, you know, there is the literal act of uh, giving your life and service to the nation, which, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, happen all too recently. And, and then, of course, over the history uh, of our nation. Uh, and then the other part of it would be, uh, you know, which fortunately I, I think most service members do, and, the, and that is that they, they choose to serve the nation uh, in order to, you know, ensure the national security uh, in many different ways. And they do that in lieu of, let's say, maybe pursuing a more lucrative career outside of service. And having said that, I, I don't want to make it seem like if you weren't in uniform, somehow that you, you don't serve our nation, because it's simply not true. There are many uh, great people who serve this nation through providing jobs, uh, through providing services uh, that make all of our lives better from our favorite lunch ladies uh, back in elementary school to the CEO of a large corporation. So, uh, but for us in particular, who, who do choose to serve in uniform, I think that fundamentally, it just means to us that we are driven uh, to do the right thing, that we adapted to the values that are given service, uh, meaning armed service, um, instilled in us. Uh, for instance, if you've ever been on an army base, uh, you'll drive through part of the army base where, you know, you might drive for half a mile and they'll have all of these signs and, you know, they're placed apart, you know, let's say 20 yards apart. 
and they'll have kind of reminders of, you know, why as a soldier or an army officer, you're doing what you're doing and uh, that sort of thing. And then of course, you know, we also uh, keep this fresh in our heads by uh, continuous professional development. We memorize uh, a lot of things, whether it's the Airman's Creed or the Code of Conduct. And, and um, I mean, it's similar going back again to, you know, our youth or childhood, you know, memorizing Bible verses, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's uh, similar to that because if you have it memorized, then when you choose to take an action, uh, hopefully you're looking at those instilled values that you've learned uh, over your life of service, uh, over your training, your professional development, um, to make the right decisions and do the right things and um, ultimately accomplish the mission, whatever it may be. And thinking about that, that idea of a mission, when you're talking to folks who are either newly enlisted or thinking about enlisting, um, what are some of the, the pros and, and cons that come up uh, as you're uh, helping them consider uh, a mission, a life of service? People certainly want to know, okay, often what's in it for me? What value do I gain? Uh, so what would you say are the pros and the cons of, of that kind of a, of a commitment? Sure. So actually my very first assignment uh, as a second lieutenant fresh out of the University of Michigan was to serve uh, for a year as what was called a gold bar minority recruiter. So I'm Hispanic. Uh, and there were a couple other um, Hispanic second lieutenants. Uh, there was a large uh, portion of Black American lieutenants and some Asian American lieutenants. And then we were trained on how to recruit. Uh, and then we were uh, scattered to the winds across the nation uh, to go out and talk to uh, both uh, high school seniors and even college students who maybe, you know, didn't realize they could either do ROTC or OTS or, or even go to a service academy. Um, so, you know, we'd be able to provide them uh, with that information about kind of the mechanics of what it took. But I think really what, uh, what you're really asking about is, at least this is how I looked at it, is as I was talking to these young fresh minds, first I was kind of trying to figure out uh, a little bit about their character and whether or not serving in the military would be a good fit for them. Uh, because I think that's very important in any profession, you know, that not everybody is going to be cut out to be a pastor like yourself. I mean, they might be intellectually capable of it, but it just may not fit. And, and by the way, in many cases, it didn't mean that they shouldn't be in the military, but maybe the Air Force wasn't the right choice. So. Uh, and as far as the pros and the cons, I mean, I, you know, the biggest pro that uh, I would discuss with them would be uh, that they would be doing something that was bigger than themselves, that they would feel uh, some amount of satisfaction. Um, but also, you know, I didn't try to sugarcoat it because as anybody who's been in the military will tell you, you know, you go through plenty of times where it's hurry up and wait, 
you know, is this thing ever going to work? Whatever it is you happen to be doing, <laughs> are we ever going to, you know, get there? Why did that major say something so stupid? Why is that sergeant, you know, being uh, mean to me? Or at least that's maybe the perception. And so um, I think part of the discussion on the cons was, you know, to be realistic and to help them uh, understand that, uh, you know, a life of service um, is likely not going to be a cushy and easy life that you are going to face some definite difficulties. And one of the things I mentioned earlier was uh, how I'd done a couple different mission trips. And and even recently, uh, when I was a student at Johns Hopkins University, um, I went another trip where, you know, the surroundings were austere. Uh, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't the life uh, that we necessarily enjoy in uh, suburban America every day, you know, walking into a room, flipping on a light switch. And so, you know, I would use uh, examples of understanding that, you know, life is going to be difficult. It is going to be challenging, that there are going to be high standards. And so uh, I, I use that then. I use it now. When I was a missile launch officer, after I uh, finished up my year as a gold, uh, minority gold bar recruiter, you know, I was in a career field where uh, anything less than, let's say, 98% on a, a test or a, a training scenario was, you know, more or less considered failure uh, because uh, the mission was so critical in the United States and mistakes just couldn't happen. And it's very stressful. So I make sure that uh, when I talk to uh, young people that they understand this. And I even would say the same thing to parents so that, you know, they go in and their expectations are well managed. And so I think that that really is a balanced approach that, that you take to kind of presenting this opportunity to folks who are, are considering it. But uh, balance is something that I think we uh, need to actually talk about uh, when we think about this life of service. It would be remiss of us not to do so. So in your experience, if you think about um, balance between your personal life and your work life, uh, it can sometimes be this, this tug of war. And when you are someone who is involved with a work, a mission uh, that can affect millions of lives, uh, how is it that you actually find balance? What, what does that look like? Well, uh, that's a really great question. And, um, and it's really difficult because uh, I think especially when we're younger and inexperienced, we sometimes don't quite understand what that means. And I know that when I was at uh, F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I was put into a position of developing an all-new computer-based training program that would be used uh, to help supplement uh, the training that we received in the classroom and in simulators. And uh, there was one night uh, where, you know, it was pretty late, uh, seven or eight o'clock and I'm still, you know, working away at trying to get 
something done. And I'll never forget uh, when Major Angel Rivera, you know, walked up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. And he's like, Lieutenant, what are you doing? I said, well, sir, I've got to get, you know, whatever it is I was working on done. And he said, let me tell you something. Uh, you've got a little boy, right? And I said, yes. He was probably about a year old. He said, he's never going to know whether or not you got it done. And he doesn't care. But he is going to want to see his dad before he goes to bed. And uh, that really uh, rung true with me. Now, having said that, uh, you know, there are times where you deploy or where it is truly all hands on deck and you do have to get things done. And so the trick in the service is to make sure that you understand that and that you do as much as possible to avoid spending too much time at work when it's really not as important and you could be home with your family and tending to you know your marriage tending to your health tending to your children making sure that you know you're seeing friends and that you're doing things that are more fun so it's very tough and uh, i know that you know, when I went on a deployment, then I just, it didn't really matter as much. It was nothing to work on a 17, 18 hour day because, you know, I mean, there was no going home. I mean, you know, we were over in the desert and um, you're going to work hard like that. That's the time to do it. But, you know, when you're in garrison and you're at home, unless it's really an emergency or it's super important, you know, you learn as you get more experienced and as your as a leader you learn to do what major rivera did and that is look at somebody and say hey pack it up and go home it'll be here tomorrow when you get in i i love that story and and what you've just described actually i think is what i think of as a work-life integration as opposed to balance sometimes uh you've got to know when okay work has to end and and the family uh is my focus and so i'm i'm unplugging and focusing on them or if if there is the the need for the family time to actually uh be more of the percentage than uh the work time uh in those times that's the 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 thing that i'm going to have to be willing to do whereas sometimes work is is taking more of that time so it's that integration so i think that the way that you described it really is helpful but like you said there is definitely an importance to both and and i mentioned about the idea of uh, your work your mission impacting millions and so i think that you would agree and this is my last question for this segment i'm going to hand it off um uh, to my co-host lango dean but i think you would agree that a major priority of the military and defense industries is to save lives so how does that industry use STEM careers to help reach that objective? Well, that's, um, you know, that's a, a great question. And it's something that anybody in um, the defense industry intuitively understands because uh, there's a couple things, uh, you know, if you kind of peel that onion back a little bit to consider. And I would say the first thing is that we need to make sure that we're always able to meet 
the mission requirements. And I'm, and I've kind of used that word and not really kind of brought to light what it derives from, but uh, it's actually pretty simple. The uh, president of the United States and uh, establishes his national security priorities uh, through a national security strategy. And then as that makes its way down uh, through the uh, Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and into doctrine and into training and into technology development, that is what drives the mission. And of course, fundamental mission is that we never want to go to war. We never want to send our young people overseas to fight for our nation. So when it comes to technology, one of the things that that we're really trying hard to do is we are trying to point out to our adversaries that our technology is so well developed that it is so robust and stout that you are a fool if you think you're going to come up against it and prevail. And so kind of one of the lines that we often hear is our first role is one of deterrence. But failing deterrence, we need to make sure that we can win with overwhelming capability and ensure that hopefully whatever the conflict is, is over as soon as possible. And that in the end, you know, if you think about World War II, when we leave, hopefully the goal would be that foe becomes a friend and, and grows. And it doesn't always happen. You know, we've seen it a couple of times in our, in our history. So that's what drives uh, the defense industry. And it really does. I know that uh, there are a lot of cynics who think it's just because you know, a given large defense contractor wants to make a lot of money and they do have an obligation to their shareholders uh, in many cases, not in all, but in many cases to generate profit. But I will tell you right now, and I know a lot of CEOs at the top of uh, some of our nation's largest defense contractors, uh, those men and women want to make sure that the things they're selling to the military never have to be used in a fight, but that it is done so well that any adversary uh, will believe that it's unwinnable to go up against us. I think that that's um, a really important perspective, and you're reminding me, uh, ironically enough, uh, one of the lines from that, that classic from years ago, The Karate Kid, um, and his sensei was uh, asking him about the importance of learning that particular skill, and he had come in, Daniel had come in thinking that, okay, I'm uh, going to learn karate so I know how to fight, and then he came to an understanding that uh, he's that I'm learning this so that I don't have to, uh, and so it was. It was that sentiment that you triggered as as you were just sharing uh, that whole perspective. I'm interested to get more perspectives, though, and so I'm going to hand off uh, to Lango Dean at this time to keep the conversation going. Hey, Lango, how's it going? 
Going very well, Dr. Vaughn. How about you? Doing very well, thank you. Looking forward to hearing about career and pipeline in the next segment. You're listening to High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, Riverside Research's Business Development Director for the United States Air Force and United States Space Force, Dan Mosqueda. Registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor. The Women of Color STEM Conference, DTX. This year, we are boldly pursuing our future as never before. As women, as leaders, as champions, we reset to rise. It's a new day. Don't miss this epic platform for women and our digital twin experience, giving you all that you expect from this powerful conference and more. We acknowledge your passion, your drive, your leadership, and your unwavering commitment to making this world a better place for women in STEM fields. The Women of Color STEM Conference, DTX, October 7th through the 9th, 2021. Register today at www.womenofcolor.net. Again, registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. So visit www.womenofcolor.net for more information. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the show, Dan. Um, It's a pleasure to have you here today. And it's been great listening to the conversation between you and Dr. Vaughn. And right at the top, I know you talked about uh, retiring uh, as a colonel from the Air Force in 2015. And you also talked a little bit about what you do now. But before you tell the audience about what your typical day looks like right now, I wondered if you could kind of focus on how that dovetails into you serving as a minority gold bar recruiter all those years ago. So for instance, when you come across a high school student who's considering either joining the uniform services or going into the federal government or state government, the kind of tips that you share with them um, for success or programs that they can join, like you did, I think, in high school or college and internships, that kind of thing. Sure. So, um, and I do that all the time and, uh, uh, and I enjoy doing it, uh, whether it's a family member or, you know, a young person that I meet, um, just kind of out in the world. And generally, you know, I'll start by kind of asking them, you know, where does their interest lie? And, uh, you know, kind of once I find, uh, that out, uh, because, you know, by the way, you know, they're often, interested in what do I do next in life? And uh, as far as, you know, going to college and what should I study, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when I ask them a few questions, it becomes a little easier to kind of help give them a vector in life, you know, to maybe consider at least. And, And sometimes, you know, for instance, you know, thinking about college, it might not be going to college at that point. And uh, in fact, my oldest son just was not interested, and that was fine. 
Um, and he decided uh, on his own that he wanted to enlist in the United States Marine Corps. And we supported him as he prepared himself uh, physically and mentally for the rigors of uh, going through basic training and then uh, through the follow-on. And, and uh, what was a really rewarding five years for him. And in his case, it, you know, allowed him time to learn a little bit more about the world, to mature. And now he's a senior at the University of Utah uh, with one more year uh, to go and he'll graduate. So, you know, once I find that out, then I'll, I'll talk to them about, you know, different opportunities. You know, they could do uh, junior ROTC in high school uh, to maybe get a glimpse at the military or civil air patrol, or perhaps, uh, you know, while they're um, in college, I might say, uh, hey, you should consider an internship at NASA or at the Air Force Research Labs um, or the other labs. And then I might also say for some, you know, you should look at, um, you know, other things like AmeriCorps or even, um, you know, look at, uh, consider serving in the Peace Corps because uh, everybody has a slightly different path in life that they take. So, you know, that's kind of, that tends to be uh, where I go uh, with them. And, and of course, you know, when we talk about STEM or, you know, as past, uh, past uh, guest of yours, um, I think it was Mr. Wells, you know, who talked about STEAM, um, I think that's uh, another really important thing too, because surprisingly, my undergraduate degree is a pretty soft liberal arts degree. It's in Russian and East European studies. I was always interested in technology. I just, that's just what I chose to study. When I got into the Air Force, they sent me to a lot of technical training uh, where I picked up a lot of the technical skills uh, that I have. But certainly, um, if somebody uh, is interested uh, in STEM, I mean, the sky's the limit for them in terms of uh, what kind of STEM and what would they like to do and where, where could they go? And, you know, do I stop at a bachelor's degree? Do I get a graduate degree? Do I go all the way through uh, to a PhD? Do I go for a National Research Council fellowship? You know, I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Kimberly Trent, uh, who's an NRC fellow right now at the Air Force Research Labs uh, down in uh, at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Kim uh, did her, uh, and she's a young Black American young lady who uh, did her undergrad at Yale and then wisely decided that she needed her PhD from the University of Michigan. <laughs> a little plug for the Wolverines again. And, uh, and then, you know, she in her own way has, you know, chosen this life of service, but I, I, I probably said more than maybe you, you planned to get out of me on that. But, um, that's something that I've worked on for folks that have worked for me or worked with me in the past. And, uh, also in some experience that I had in large intern program for the Air Force Research Labs in the past. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, um, the story about your son is just, uh, is just, you know, like leaning into that. 
and the various pathways that you shared uh, with us, junior ROTC, internships, um, Peace Corps or um, AmeriCorps. And you also talked about the preparation that you did with your son, your wife and yourself, preparing him physically and mentally, you said, for the challenges of joining the Marine Corps. And so I, I, I think of that now, and I think of you and all the various things that you've talked about, that there's that thread of mentoring that runs right through. So what is the best way, you think, for young people to find mentors? Because a lot of young people are not as fortunate to have family who can be there and be mentors. Um, so what would you recommend? What would you suggest to young people to help them find good mentors and help them make good decisions? Well, um, and that's a great question. And if I'm honest, um, early on in my uh, young lieutenancy, um, there was a short period of time where I didn't have maybe the best mentoring that I could find. But what I had read and what I was told was, you got to go out and find a mentor. And that's not easy uh, necessarily to do, depending on one circumstance. So uh, my parents uh, didn't know much about college. They were very supportive. And I'll tell you, they did a lot to make it possible. Um, but uh, neither of them graduated uh, from high school um, until um, my mom eventually did much later. But uh, they were supportive. So, but what I would say to, to, you know, a young person is, you know, if someone's not jumping in to mentor you, and that could very well be the case, you got to go out and find somebody, you know, and you have to kind of ask people questions and you'll know when you find the right person, because they're going to be the ones who listen to you, who aren't distracted, who look you in the eye who ask as many questions as they answer. So you're saying to young people, go out there, you'll know when you find the right person because those people or that person will make time to listen to you. They will look you in the eye and you know they will sit down and not be distracted when you're speaking to them. It sounds to me like you had a mentor when you were in high school. Of course, your parents were there. Um, how did your mentors help you choose the path forward? I know you talked about being inspired by seeing that chaplain in, in uniform. And, of course, you went on into the ROTC. But did you have any mentors that helped you choose that path? And, and what were some of the best lessons that you were able to learn from your mentor? So there was one other visual uh, mentor, and it was uh, a guy, uh, you know, recent high school graduate who went to my church, who was accepted into uh, the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. So he would come home, and I would see him uh, in the uniform. I wouldn't say necessarily that um, he mentored me. I would say that he inspired me um, in high school. I had uh, a couple of really great teachers who maybe uh, didn't specifically steer me towards the Department of Defense or the Air Force, but what I would say 
is that they did listen, they did take an interest, they did spend time with me, and I think that what they did for me was they helped me realize that I had a voice, I had something worthwhile to say, and uh, they encouraged that. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a teacher, it's going to be a neighbor if it's not your parents, it's going to be you know, somebody at church, if you're not going to church, go find one and meet somebody there. You don't even have to go to be churched. You, um, trust me, there's going to be people there who will love you and want to take care of you no matter what your spiritual setting is. But there are people there who, who want to help. Mm-hmm. So the trick is, is getting out there and finding them. Mm, very encouraging. There are people out there who want to help, who want to help. It could be your teacher, it could be your neighbor, it could be someone in your faith-based community, your church. You never know. Um, but there's always, just have it at the back of your mind that there's someone out there who wants to help. Thank you so much for sharing those encouraging words, Dan. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, at this point, I'm going to throw it back to Dr. Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn? Well, thanks so much, Lango, and I just echo that last headline about people being willing to help. That's such an important message uh, in in the times that we've been living in, certainly. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Mosqueda, we've, we've really been uh, enjoying getting to know you. Before we uh, wrap up this time, I want to ask you a lighthearted question, and then I'm going to ask you to just leave us uh, with some words of encouragement for uh, the listeners uh, that have joined us today. But first, the lighthearted. Over the course of the summer, a lot of us were focused on the kind of the three Bs, uh, Bezos, Branson, and their billions, as they they, kind of led the the charge uh, uh, for, um, I guess, commercial uh, space opportunity. So since you are uh, the, the space man uh, uh, with us today. All kidding aside, how did you feel about those events and and what excites you about the prospects of what is to come? Well, uh, let me say this, that, uh, you know, I read plenty of um, cynical uh, remarks in the news and uh, it's easy to pop off a, a, a negative thought or, or, or joke at the expense of that. But the bottom line is, that in each case uh, between uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and and his work with Blue Origin and uh, Sir Richard Branson and his work at uh, both Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit, the reality is that the funding that they have put into it, and I'll I'll throw uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, and his better half Gwen Shotwell uh, into this as well what these people have done is they have done incredible technological development that simply wasn't going to be affordable uh, from the united states government alone and they have moved us uh quite a ways down uh the playing field if you will i mean uh, i have been there in person to watch a SpaceX launch and land. It's just amazing. Um, 
to see that. And the other day, uh, while I was at the National Space Symposium, in fact, in Colorado Springs, um, uh, before I headed out to meetings, there was a, a launch of a uh, Blue Origin spacecraft, uh, rocket and spacecraft, uh, that went uh, to what we call suborbital. It did cross the 100-kilometer uh, uh, von Karman line, which indicates that technically it was in space. And, uh, you know, in the sphere, you know, in the amount of, say, 10 or so minutes, that thing launched, went up there, did some scientific experiments, and landed. Uh, that is amazing. So uh, say what you will about billionaires paying their way to space. Uh, in reality, what they've done is they have set the bar a lot higher. And, uh, and I think if we all step back, there's nobody else in the Western world, uh, and certainly not um, among our adversaries, who have achieved as much as they have, that in the end, trust me, benefits the national security, not of just the United States, but uh, for the global commons in space, and uh, really for the world. So uh, I'm really proud of what they've done. Uh, I'm proud to be in this industry, and I'm proud to spend uh, every day out trying to help the scientists and engineers where I work get their brilliant uh, work and inventions into the hands of other scientists and engineers and uh, ultimately into the hands of uh, colloquially what we uh, call as warfighters, but as I said earlier, hopefully they're really um, defenders who uh, are providing a, a deterrent. And uh, these amazing people that none of us will ever hear about, Dr. Ashwin Fisher, Dr. Bill Haysbeer, Mr. Eric Pattison, Dr. Stephen Omick, Roger Crone, and a bunch of other people, people the average American will never hear hear about. They're doing great things to make the world a safer place and a better place. And uh, it's great to be a part of it. Wow, I, I say here, here to that. And, and I said that we were going to ask you to uh, kind of close us with some words of inspiration. I would say you did that. Um, <laughs> and it is really, I'm thinking, encouraging for us as we think about the whole idea of a life of service, uh, that at the end of the day, even if your name doesn't become one that is household in nature, you still can make a difference. And I'm telling you, uh, that's what it's all about. So, so Dan Mosqueda, it has really been a pleasure having you with us here on this episode of High Tech Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure. And um, just a, a quick shout out to my own firm, which is uh, Riverside Research, uh, where we do, uh, we're not for profit, and we do R&D uh, for the United States uh, government. Um, and uh, actually, we uh, were born out of Columbia University in Manhattan in the 50s, and all these years later, uh, still doing great and new things every day. And I'm super proud to uh, work there and um, continue what uh, has become a life of service. 
Very cool. Thank you so much. And um, we look forward to hearing more uh, as you continue on this journey of service. For now, we're going to hand it back over to Brandon Newby to see us off. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communications Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time. It's time to get your nominations in for the Bay of STEM Awards. The honorees will be recognized at the Bay of STEM Conference held annually with a community over 10,000 strong that focuses on celebrating excellence by showcasing career opportunities and professionals in the STEM fields. The 36th Annual Conference will be held on February 17th through the 19th, 2022. Please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process to make sure nominations packets have everything it needs for the upcoming Bay of STEM conference. All peer reviewed nominations are due on August 31st, 2021. All outstanding achievement awards are due on October 1st, 2021. Again, please visit our website at www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process.